You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Matthew Libatique. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. As a cinematographer, what you're trying to do is portray the story in the proper way. Yes. Of course, there's going to be an aesthetic that you place on based on your own taste, you know, and what you believe in, uh, maybe some of the things that you're attracted to, inspired by, but ultimately everything, all decisions are made with the narrative in place, or with the narrative in mind, let's say. So I'd like to think I don't have one, <laughs> like one distinctive style. And what I'd, I'd love to do in uh, my career generally is to do different work so that it forces me not to repeat myself. I think that the one sort of base layer or foundation for me is to, to uh, sort of dissect and deconstruct the screenplay so that I can figure out technically what I would uh, apply and eventually form an aesthetic for and a visual language for based on the screenplay. And then that after that, um, that sort of entails uh, doing deep dives into research with photographs and art and music and things that you see in life and things that you remember from your past that sort of inform, they inform the things that you choose to do. So it's interesting because you worked with um, Darren Aronofsky on a number of films. So in a way, maybe your, your visual style with him has grown, you've grown together in that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, when people comment uh, often about the, the subjectivity and maybe don't even say the word subjectivity, but it's something that uh, you leave the audience is left with after seeing a film that he's done or we've done together where there's a subjectivity to the camera and people are connected to that one person. I mean, he excels as a filmmaker because he makes films about one singular character. You know, there's only been one time in our career together where that became more difficult because all the other characters, the peripheral characters, had as much importance, and that was Noah. You would think a film called Noah would be just about Noah, but there are so many other factors involved, and those characters needed some space, and they needed agency as well. But uh, if you look back on A Reckoning for a Dream, the character of Sarah Goldfarb, played by Ellen Burstyn, there's a subjectivity. Our first film together, Pi, Max Cohen, the language of the camera was built around the notion of subjectivity. And then we carry that all the way over to Black Swan and Mother, where the camera uh, just gets more and more subjective. And it's sort of a thing that's evolved over time. We were much younger during Requiem and much older during Black Swan and even older during uh, Mother. And, you know, we matured as people. So uh, perhaps there's less sugar in the coffee (laughs) today than there was when we made Pie and Requiem for a Dream. But um, the notion of subjectivity is something that we've always been exploring. When you study light and you live with it, you're logging and cataloging times of day, you know, and light quality. And then, you know, and I'm in the business as a craftsman, I'm in the business of portraying that from artifice and making it feel natural. So uh, cataloging as much naturalism as possible is uh, important for me to be able to uh, recreate it somehow, some way. And when I do a setup for a scene, I constantly ask myself whether or not it looks like reality. And as a cinematographer, you are basically the uh, bridge between the technical side and the creative side. It's the place where you, you have to articulate the sensitivities of the creative side to the technical side. 
and transpose those things into execution. So with, with that film, it, it was very fluid that way. And that the, re the reason why the camera moved that way was so that there was moments of inspiration. If something was all of a sudden working very well with a performance, we can transition to that person and not worry about all the things that come with making a film, like the equipment, just this, the imposition of like big pieces of equipment that are sort of being distractions. You know, what you want to do is create an, an, an environment that feels like the actor can move in space. And if one take moves to another take to another take, ideas could actually uh, transpire and uh, be uh, captured. And I, I say this a lot in terms of uh, cinematography is that you have to be malleable. You're, uh, you almost have to be a bit of a chameleon because the director you're working with is going to shift your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Like in some way you become an actor in this oh, uh, performance of making the film because you transform yourself into the advocate of this person, whether you agree 100% or not. And the mm -hmm. style in which this person works and the, the style in which actors work is going to dictate how you work, uh, how I work. In this case, I do like rules. When we made pie with Darren, we made pie, we were, we were restricted by what we had and what we did. We're more restricted by what we did not have. Mm -hmm. um, at that point in our lives and, and, and our careers. So we constructed a style of film that was achievable based on what we had. But I, I guess what I'm saying is each situation sort of brings to the table a set of parameters and restrictions that you play inside of. And once those are established, the creativity begins. With A Star is Born, what was truly magical for me about the film wasn't actually the end result. <laughs> I, although people liked the way the film was. What was magical to me is that I saw the connection between a very established musical force and established acting force, helping each other turn into each other in a certain way. Gaga had to help Bradley be a musician and Bradley had to help Gaga be an actor. That was something beautiful to witness and I had a front row seat for that. For me, what I realized I had to do was give them as much space with the camera, give this, as much space with the light so that there was room to try to capture the, the moments, the, the really emotional moments, without disturbing those. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's something Darren and I have always talked about since we were young. You know, we met in uh, film school. We've always talked about like, protecting the actor and, and giving them room for performance. Speaking of auteurs, you've worked with Spike Lee a, a number of times. I understand that he was like influential in terms of like your decision to go into filmmaking. Absolutely. I mean, he's, uh, he's become a, a friend and a confidant, but he started off as an inspiration, huh. but a life-changing inspiration. I've had a lot of inspirations creatively, mm -hmm. but he's one of the very few that was a life-changing inspiration for me because he... He exemplified a way for me to understand that I may perhaps I had a future in cinema coming from where I come from mm -hmm. and being who I was. Uh, you know, I'm a first generation Filipino. Mm -hmm. My parents did not, although they believed in this, you know, the theoretical American dream, they didn't know how to achieve it necessarily. It's very easy to say hard work because that's what I heard as a child, hard work, hard work, hard work. But I didn't know all the nuts and bolts of how I was going to get into a, a university. I didn't know how I was going to do anything, really, because they didn't know. 
So I didn't, you know, I was very confused as a child. I was very confused as a teenager. I was very confused as a young man. And I was probably about 19 years old when I saw Do the Right Thing. And then I realized that film cinema was something that was attainable. Before that, I had seen things like Indiana Jones and uh, Star Wars, and, and nothing could be further from what was my reality. Like, there's no way. I had no idea. But when I started to see that, he inspired me to look into, you know, like Jim Jarmusch, because I read an article in a magazine about Spike Lee and how he went to school and how he, he rented equipment to Jim Jarmusch for Stranger Than Paradise. And I thought I researched Jim Jarmusch. And in my world was exploded. Something about Filipino culture is that they, because they feel there's such a, a diminished quality to their existence in the U.S., they're sort of invisible in the way because we blend in uh, uh, culturally. We're able to mix in with different cultures and then uh, seemingly lose our own, and and our culture stays at home. It doesn't make it into the restaurants typically unless you're in New York or Los Angeles. People know very little about Filipino culture. So um, now, at my age, I've met more and more Filipino filmmakers who have become interested in making cinema. So I hope that that day comes. I wonder what that story is. I, I, I have to say, in, in, uh, not in any disparaging way, I just feel like whatever it is, it's going to be a comedy. It's just going <laughs> to be funny. But I think it's turning around. I think people are becoming more, it's becoming more important for, for people to hold on to their culture, especially in a country where I think uh, the U.S. is a country that struggles, really struggles to define what the actual culture is. Just having a sense of history generally is very important. And as people, a lot of artists and whatever disciplines have spoken to me about that. And I think that, that there is a kind of collective amnesia forgetting about. And then the subsequent generations, they want to know. And the generation before said, well, they told us to forget, you know? So, yeah, um, you know. exactly. I, I never really asked a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. I never asked a lot of questions. I was first generation, so I feel like when I look back at my uh, upbringing, I, I felt like I was just trying to survive in a place that seemed foreign to me. And I look at my children. They interviewed my mother for school, mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't tell me anything that they they recorded or anything. But I, I thought that was interesting. It's just like, you know, a generation has to sacrifice itself to assimilate. Exactly, yeah. And then the next, and the next generation can start to observe. And I think that that's, um, that's just the way of the world. I, but I now, you know, I'm regretful that I don't know more, uh, to be honest. And, then, and that's a search. And I think that, that, you know, my trip to the Philippines and my discussions with Filipino filmmakers and your initial question, absolutely, I, I think that uh, there's something that would be uh, completely empty in my life if I didn't, wasn't able to uh, contribute to the Filipino cinema in some way, even if it was there. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.